I think it's really important for us as we go through this section to remember the context of 2 Corinthians 13. The church in Corinth, the believers in Corinth, are there mainly because God sent Paul to preach the gospel in this area of Corinth many years before. So he was the church planter. He was the one that first went there with the message of Jesus. He saw many people uh, come to faith in Jesus. Uh, a, A good church was established. But that church began to have problems kind of early on. And so Paul had to write a letter to them, which is 1 Corinthians, about the situations that they were in. And they were, even though they were a church that loved God and they were a church that was really experiencing some powerful things of the Holy Spirit, they were also a church that was getting into things that weren't so healthy. They would get into these arguments and they would sue each other over silly things. And they would kind of play favorite preachers and kind of say, oh, I'm of Peter or oh, I'm of Paul or I'm of Cephas or whatever. And they would get in these kind of these little cliques inside their own church. And, and even though they were open to the things of the Spirit and there were some powerful things happening, they began even to do things that weren't of God. They began to sort of want to see uh, the, the supernatural aspects of the work of God's Spirit, but there was no love there. They were doing it out of selfishness and they were doing it out of, of, of vainglory, wanting to show off. They were a church that was often sort of being infiltrated by false teachers, people who were bringing in wrong ideas. Uh, they were a church that had such a wrong view of God's grace that when there was a, a young man who was sleeping with his stepmother, they let them stay in the church and didn't confront them on the issue. And Paul had to say, look, that's just wrong. You have to deal with that. Even unbelievers don't get involved in that kind of junk. And so Paul had to deal with this church in some pretty heavy, heavy ways. And so he writes this first letter. And what seems to have happened is some of these false teachers have thought, who's Paul? Why do you got to listen to this guy? And they kind of undermined his credibility. And so we get this idea that Paul had written another letter, what he calls a severe letter, that was very confrontational. And he writes that letter, and then what he ends up realizing is that they do respond, the Corinthian church responds to that letter, they go, oh man, we've, we've messed up, and, you know, and so they, they kick out the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, and, and they try to clean, up, clean house a little bit, but then they get so severe, and they get so sort of condemned by what happened, that they are susceptible to these false teachers who stay in Corinth and begin to manipulate them and say, listen, you know, Paul's either too harsh or Paul's too soft. And really, he's not an apostle in the same way we're apostles. We're the ones who really have the authority of God. And so when he writes 2 Corinthians, he's defending his apostleship. He's defending the fact that he does have authority from God, that he has been sent by God to do these things. And we've seen throughout this letter that this is one of the most personal letters that Paul wrote. I mean, there's some deep kind of heavy theological nuggets in here, but mostly this is just a pastor sharing his heart with a group of people that he loves. And even though they didn't always trust him, they didn't always love him the way they should, he was committed to them, he cared for them. But he knows he needs to go back there and deal with these false teachers. And so basically from the, in this last part of this letter from chapter 10 forward, he's dealing with that minority of people who still haven't repented, who are still listening to those false teachers, and he's dealing with the false teachers themselves. And so he's kind of giving this last warning towards the end of this letter, saying, listen, if I come, I'm going to deal with this stuff. 
when I show up, I'm going to clean house. I'm going to deal with these things. And so he's wanting them, instead of having to go there and have to be gruff with them and, and severe with them, he's wanting them to make the changes. He's wanting them to really think about where they're at. Now, don't forget, there's, a serious, uh, there's some serious consequences involved in this because these false teachers in undermining Paul's credibility are also undermining the message that he gave. So that they're trying to take away the true gospel that Paul preached and replace it with a false gospel that they're bringing in. And so this is not just about who's going to be in charge or who's popular. It's none of that rubbish. This is really about are these people going to be right with God? Have they really believed the true gospel? And so Paul gives this exhortation in the middle of the section to examine themselves Take a good look inside. See where you're actually at. Now, we don't like to do this, do we? I mean, some people can be. Some people, there can be those people who are almost morbidly introspective. They're always looking on the inside and analyzing their own feelings and their thoughts, and that can be unhealthy. But for the most part, we'd rather just sort of think the best about ourselves. We'd rather just kind of assume we're getting it right. And if somebody wants to confront us, we think, well, who are you? In fact, let's be honest, the most popular verse in our Western culture is judge not. Hey, hey, don't anyone judge me, don't anybody examine me. I've examined myself, I'm fine. And we don't like confrontation, we don't want to have ourselves exposed. But, you know, we need to understand, especially those of us who profess faith in Jesus, we need to understand how healthy it can be to take a step back and say, okay, where am I really at in my walk with God? What do I really believe? What do I really understand? A pastor from a few years ago, a British pastor named Alan Redpath, he said this, self-examination takes the chill away from our soul. It takes the hardness away from your heart. It takes the shadows away from your life. It sets the prisoner free. There's something healthy about us looking and saying, okay, where am I actually at? Let me be honest about where I'm at with God. Let me not just play games or make a a lighthearted profession. Where am I at with my Creator? Now, we're going to deal with how what, what Paul's what Paul's trying to address with the Corinthians specifically. But my heart is to see this applied to us today that we would ourselves examine ourselves. And so what I want to do is kind of give three basic questions, ask three kind of questions that we can ask ourselves about being self-examining. The first one is this. Ask yourself this question. Do I need mercy or do I need justice? Paul says in verse 1, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And then he quotes... Deuteronomy 19.15, or at least the last part of Deuteronomy 19.15. Now, let me give you the whole verse. It should be up on the screen. It says this, the whole verse says, One witness shall not rise up against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. So when God gives Moses the law, Moses is the one who wrote this down, Deuteronomy 19, he wants to make sure, look, there's, there needs to be justice What needs to happen is, if someone thinks someone else has done something wrong, they can't just say so-and-so is guilty of murder or rape or whatever. There's got to be some evidence. 
So-and-so stole something from me. There needs to be some evidence there. There needs to be two or three witnesses. Even our Western court system is based roughly on that idea. There needs to be evidence. There's got to be witnesses. And so the, the, the thing is here is that Paul's basically wanting the Corinthians to know, look, I'm, I'm coming to you with evidence, not just accusations. This is not just me having sour grapes. Now, there's debate about what that evidence might be. Some say it's the three letters that he's written, including this one, which wouldn't make much sense because that's just one witness. But I think it's probably the fact that he had sent Titus to see what was going on in Corinth. He had sent Timothy to see what was going on in Corinth. He himself was going to go back to see what's going on in Corinth. And he's going, okay, here's three witnesses, and we're all seeing the same thing. You guys are jacked up. You're not dealing with the stuff in your life. And he's saying, listen, this is not just me making stuff up. We need to deal with this stuff. It's very serious, and I'm going to bring the evidence. In fact, he says in verse 2, listen, I've told you before. I'm telling you again, and I'm, I'm writing to those who have sinned before. In other words, the people that are guilty of continuing to do this stuff. He says, if I come again, he says, I will not spare. He said, there'll be no leniency. What that means is that Paul says, if I go back to that church and I find there's still, you guys still aren't repenting of these things, I'm checking you out. They got to understand this is a really big deal. Tom mentioned uh, the, the woman that he was sharing with who's interested in becoming a Christian. But she's concerned because she's wondering what does that mean for her family? Will she be completely ostracized by her family? Will she have to distance herself from her family. And that's something that us in the West, we, don't, we can't always relate to, can we? I mean, I, my, none of my family are Christian, so when I became a Christian, they kind of thought I was, you know, a bit nuts. But they kind of pat you on the head and say, well, that's okay. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. You know, they used to call me now the, the, the black sheep of the family. Now I'm the white sheep of the family. That's what they say. And so, and so now even after 20 plus years, there's a, a respect. They think it's great that I'm a Jesus follower. Pray for them, please. They still don't know the Lord. But the thing is, there was no huge loss in that. There was no, like, you can't be in the family anymore, or we disown you, or you've dishonored us. But that happens often in Eastern cultures. That would happen in biblical times. So that when people became Christians, especially Gentiles who became Christians, okay, they had separated themselves. Often they were ostracized by their families. They put themselves in, they put themselves in, they made themselves contradictory to the Roman Empire itself because the Roman Empire taught that you should worship Caesar as Lord. And they're saying, no, there's no Lord but Jesus now. So it was risky business to become a Christian. So if you became a Christian and you join yourself to this group of people, to lose that place is a huge deal. And Paul doesn't want that to happen. That's why he's written now three letters to them, at least three. Some even say possibly four. He doesn't want to see them separated. He wants to see them supported. He wants to see them growing. But he's saying to them, listen, this is serious stuff. If you are not willing to turn from the different sins that you're involved in, I'm not going to be lenient. I'm not going to hold back. Now, now Paul doesn't like, you can sense that Paul doesn't like doing this. Look what he says in verse 3. He speaks sort of sarcastically, he says, since you seek a proof or a evidence of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you but mighty among you, he says, this is what's motivating me. You, you sense in Paul like, look, I really don't want to do this. I really don't want to come and be the big heavy. Paul seemed to have a distaste towards authoritarianism. 
He didn't want to have that kind of power over people or exercise that sort of power. So even though he was an apostle and he had that kind of authority, he was very slow to kind of exercise that authority. He didn't want to be somebody who was overly authoritative. But that doesn't mean he wasn't willing to come and represent the authority of Christ. Let's go back to this self-examining question, the first one. Do I need mercy or justice? See, Paul's wanting them to, to understand something. They're kind of going, Paul, we, we don't know if you've, you've dealt with things rightly, and the false teachers say, we don't know if we can trust you. But Paul's saying, wait a second, think about your own track record. Think about how you've actually lived. Do you really want to claim your own righteousness? Do you really want to say, oh, I, I deserve better than this, I want justice? Or do you want to recognize that you have sinned and you need to humble yourself because you need mercy? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall obtain mercy. Why? Why did he say that? Why did he say, oh, how happy are the merciful? Because the merciful are those who know how desperate they are for mercy. They know how much mercy they need from God, therefore they're merciful to other people. And Paul's kind of saying, do you get this? I don't want to come and, and, and put down the hammer but you, kind, you guys keep acting like you don't need mercy when you so desperately do need mercy. You know, this is often the thing that keeps us from moving on with God because what happens is we do something that isn't right. We know it's not right. But we look around and we see other people also doing things wrong. And we think, well, they seem to get away with it. Why can't I get away with it? And we think it doesn't seem right. I want justice. It's not fair. They should get in trouble if I'm going to get in trouble. God should bust them if he's going to bust me. And we get these bad attitudes. Because why? Because we think we should have justice. When really, what we really should be begging for is mercy. Jesus told the religious leaders, he says, go and figure out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, says the Lord. Because they were thinking, we are the just ones. We're the righteous ones. Hey, Jesus, you're bringing up these ideas that we don't think are right. We want to hear some fair ideas, some right ideas. And Jesus is going, you don't get it, man. You guys need mercy more than anybody else, but you don't see it. Can I ask you a really serious question? Do you realize how much mercy you need from God? You know, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize how much mercy and grace I need from God. Man, I sin every day, several times a day I sin. In action, in attitude, in my thoughts, with my words. I see myself, I'll even know, I'll think, okay, I get this. I should behave this way in this circumstance, and then I don't do it. It's humiliating, it's shameful for me to even think about how much I mess up, how far I fall short. But you know why I, I have hope? Because God is merciful. God's merciful. When we're examining ourselves, what do we see? Do we see someone who needs, I, I'm a victim, I need justice. Well, you probably are a victim, you've probably been sinned against, all of us have. But God desires us to be willing to look at ourselves and say, man, I'm a perpetrator. I need mercy. That's what's going to lead you to show mercy to others. 
is recognize how much mercy you need for yourself. And so Paul's wanting to provoke them towards this. It's interesting too because the same verse in Deuteronomy 19.15, Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter 18 in the context of what we might call church discipline. Listen to this, the words of Jesus. Moreover, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take uh, with you one or two more by the, mouth, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That's the Deuteronomy 19. And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let them be as a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Jesus is there talking about, of course, if someone says, I don't need forgiveness, then you're able to say with authority, well, then your sins are unforgiven. If someone says, man, I need forgiveness, I need God's mercy, and if they're trusting in Jesus for that mercy, you can say with the authority of heaven, then you're forgiven, you're loosed from those sins. That's what he's talking about there. See, the point is, guys, is that Paul wants these Corinthians to know, listen, there has been serious things going on here and that you need mercy for those things. So when I come to you, you know what I want to give you? Mercy. But if you don't see your need for it, you know what you're going to get? Judgment. Now, verse 4, he says, for though, he's speaking of Christ. Let me say this too in the last part of verse 3 quickly. When he says, um, looking for proof that Christ is speaking in me, basically Paul says, I'm going to prove that when I come. But he says, Christ is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. It's probably better translated mighty among you. He's talking about the fact that, you know, Christ is going to show his power among you through, through Paul's bringing in church discipline. So he says this though, verse four, for though Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. This is the interesting thing about Jesus, that Jesus, when he came on the scene, he showed himself to be both weak and strong. What I mean by weak is, he was weak in the sense that he came as a man. He came as this man uh, who, who was... Um, susceptible to all the sort of things that we're susceptible to. He could have gotten sick. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He felt pain. He understood the relational uh, issues. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that he was tested in all ways as we are tested, yet without sin. He went through all the same things that we go through. He was weak in that sense, yet he was also strong. He showed the very authority of God by his miracles, through his teaching, by raising people from the dead, by casting out demons. In fact, listen to what the scripture says in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. It says, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was with God, and notice the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God become man. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus, God, strong, becoming like man, weak. Now, Paul says when he comes, verse 4, he's coming in a, in, in a similar way. He says, listen, for we also, speaking of him and the other apostles, we also are weak in him, but, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Now, what Paul's talking about here, he says, look, we're both also going to come as, as apostles as weak and strong. We're weak in that we've humbled ourselves in the same way Jesus has humbled himself. 
But when we come, we're coming with authority. Let me explain what I mean. Look at Deuteronomy chapter, I'm sorry, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It should be on the screen. Listen, speaking of Jesus, says Christ Jesus equaled God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearances of men. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Jesus came that way. Well, what does the Bible say about Paul? Paul had said earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 about himself and the other apostles. He says, look, we're hard-pressed on every side. We're weak, but we're not crushed. We're strong. We are perplexed. We're weak, but we're not in despair. We're strong. We're persecuted. We're weak, but we're not forsaken. We're strong. We're struck down. We're weak, but we're not, dis- but not destroyed. We're strong. We're both of these things. Paul says, I'm coming in the same way. Now, again, here's the probing question we can ask ourselves. Ask yourself, am I concerned with Christ's weakness or am I concerned with Christ's strength? Now, be willing to bet most of you aren't concerned with Christ's weakness. Most of us in the West are attracted to his weakness, his humanity, the fact that he's, he was nice and, and he was kind and children came into his arms. We like that Jesus. He's non-threatening. But there are a lot of cultures and there's even a lot of religious groups that have a big a hard time with the weakness of Jesus, with the humanity of Jesus, because they think, well, wait a second. You're trying to say that's God who became that? No, there's no way God could be that weak, that approachable, that vulnerable. God could not make himself that way. So I have a problem with his weakness. But often what we have in the West is a problem with the strength of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. And being creator God, the Bible says, again, in John 1, you can look it up later, it says really clearly that there was nothing that was created that was not created through him. He's the creator of all things. So that the creator of the universe came, pierced history, came down on this earth in the form of a man. Which do you have a problem with? What's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus? Is it that you see Jesus as, oh, he's too nice, he's too weak, Probably not. Is it you see Jesus is too strong? You, you know, faith in Jesus, the fact that he would have authority as Lord and God of your life, is that what keeps you from moving forward? Because you're afraid. Paul's saying, listen, we're going to come in strength and weakness like Jesus came in strength and weakness. Then he says, almost done, verse 5, examine yourself, ex- examine yourselves as to whether you are, notice, in the faith. He didn't say whether you have a faith, but if you're in the faith. So when he's talking about the faith, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the truth that describes what we're meant to believe. He's talking about the truths that we're called to believe, not the act of believing, okay? So when he says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, he's wanting us to ask a certain question. He's wanting us to be convinced. He's wanting us, or he's wanting us to know, do, do you believe the true gospel? That's what he means by the faith. And this is the third question. You have to ask yourself, do I believe the true gospel or a false one? Ask yourself this question seriously. Here's what we mean. The faith. Paul talks about the faith earlier uh, in, in Ephesians. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 through 10, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Notice, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. False gospels, whether they're, they're called gospels or attached to Jesus or not, always have this thing in, cost, uh, in common. False gospels always say, here's what you need to do to get right with God. Here's the works that you do to earn a place with God or to achieve nirvana or whatever you want to call it. They're based on you meriting something. Those are false gospels, whether they're connected to the person of Jesus or not. The true gospel is this. It's not our works, but his works. It's what he's done for us. That's the true gospel. It's grace. Because remember what grace means. Grace is what? God's unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We can't earn God saying, I approve of you. We can't earn that, ever. But also, listen, grace is God's divine enabling. He makes us able to trust him. He begins the changes from the inside out. That's why we wanted to underscore those, those prepositions. Prepositions are important. Your grammar teacher was right. It's not of works. You're not saved of works, but you're saved for works. In other words, what happens is, what happens is, is when God saves us, he has us to do good things. He calls us to do good things. But those good things don't make us more right with him or more loved by him. They're things that he calls us to do to show others his love for us demonstrate that. See, when we, when we want to answer the, answer the question, do I believe the true gospel or the false one, we need to be convinced of the necessity of grace through faith. That's the true gospel. Are we convinced of that? But also, look what he says, verse five. He says, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves? Notice that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, of course, you're disqualified. Now, the word for disqualified there, we'll talk about it again in a minute, but it's a word that basically means you've been tested and, and failed. You've shown that what you thought was there wasn't actually there. Now, notice what Paul says. Paul says, here's the test. Is Jesus in you? Now, this is bigger than just saying some prayer when you're a little kid. I want Jesus to come into my heart. This is much bigger than this. Because what Paul's wanting us to be convinced of, he's wanting the Corinthians to examine themselves and be sure of, okay, if I believe the true gospel, then I need to be convinced of the evidence of my new hope, of the hope that I have. The scripture says about hope. Listen, Paul writes this in Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know, notice the hope of his calling, God calling you. Paul also writes in Colossians 1.27, he says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Notice, here's the mystery. Here's the thing that we now know. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know what hope is in the New Testament? It's not like wishful thinking. Well, gee, I hope I get to go there someday. Hope in the New Testament means expectation. And what the Bible teaches is this, that if we have put our faith in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, to be right with God, we can expect that we're going to see him in glory. When Paul, when Paul writes about Christ in you, listen, I want you to picture in your mind quickly, picture in your mind a little kid 
like a a two-year-old or a four-year-old. So this little four-year-old boy, and he goes into his dad's wardrobe, and he finds his dad's work uniform. And he wants to be like dad, and so he puts on his work uniform, and he comes clumsily out wearing his father's work uniform because he knows he's his father's son, and he wants to identify with his father. That's kind of how we are. We're clothed in the Father's uniform, so to speak. We have the covering of Christ, but it doesn't quite fit us yet. We have to grow into it. In the, in the 90s, when I was doing youth ministry in California, it was kind of cool to wear, um, to wear old army jackets. And so what, what happened is there was like, um, one of those kids in my youth group, he was like a, a fresher in high school, which means about 14, and he used to wear his dad's army jacket that said his dad's last name, his last name, Dragston on it, and it was like huge on him. He looked ridiculous, but he was, thought he was so cool wearing this army jacket, right? Well, the thing is now, that guy's in his late 20s, and he's huge, he's ripped, he's this big muscly guy. He probably couldn't even fit the jacket on, but he wears it now, and people would think, oh, you were in the army. Dragston, that's your last name. You must have been in the army, because he grew into that, It was given to him by his father. It had his name on it, but he grew into it. This is what we talk about when we talk about the righteousness of God, that we're given the righteousness of God as a gift. God says, I declare you right and innocent. But then he calls us to grow into it and our being grown into it, Christ growing us from the inside out, our being grown into it is our expectation of glory. Why do I know I'm gonna go to heaven? Because Christ provided for that. How do I know he provided it for me? Because I, I see he's changing me from the inside out. Oh, the jacket's still huge on me right now, but one day it's gonna fit perfect. That's the hope of glory. Do you believe that gospel? Do you believe a gospel that is, I'm going to be with him one day? We've said this, we went through Colossians that often what happens, people who believe in heaven will even say, yeah, there's a heaven. I don't know if I'm gonna go there, but I think I probably should. But that's not the attitude of someone who knows the real gospel. The attitude of someone who knows the real gospel is this. Yeah, there's a heaven, and I don't have any right to be there. I don't, I don't deserve to go there, but I know for sure I'm gonna be there. You know why? Because Christ is in me, and he's the hope of glory. Because he's saved me. He's provided for my salvation. Paul's saying this is what you need to examine yourself about. Almost done, verse six. But then Paul says, but I trust, he says to the Corinthians, that you will know that we are not disqualified, we as the apostles. Now understand what Paul's kind of saying here. Paul's going, okay, listen. He, I'm the one who planted the church in Corinth, okay? So you heard the gospel from me and you had a radical conversion. You began to be a Jesus follower because of my ministry. So I'm kind of thinking that you're going to assume that I'm actually a Christian myself, that I'm not disqualified, because you got saved through my ministry. You heard the gospel that I believe. So if it saved, if that gospel saved you, if that Jesus saved you, then guess what? I'm saved too. He's kind of wanting to see, look, if you deny me, you're denying the gospel you believe in the first place. How do you know you're even right with God? You see, but if you trust the gospel that I gave you, then keep trusting the gospel that I gave you because I know I'm not disqualified and you can know you're not disqualified. In other words, when we're asking that question that I believe the true gospel or a false one, we're asking ourselves that question, we need to be convinced of the credibility of the people who told us that gospel. Now, let me be clear about this. 
What I mean by that is not necessarily like my credibility. So there's only probably a few of you here who became Christians listening to me preach. But I'm not talking about you listening to me and I have credibility, therefore you know you're saved. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that the apostles, their doctrine, this book, is what we trust. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, listen, if our information about Jesus is accurate, if you trust what we've given you about Jesus being accurate, okay, then you can know that you belong to him. You can ask the question of, yes, I've believed the real gospel. Let me give you a couple quick verses that back this up, this idea that they've given us accurate information. The apostle John wrote this in 1 John chapter 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, and he's talking about Jesus there, the word was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. Do you see what John's saying? John's saying, listen, I know there's eternal life. I know heaven is real. You know why? Because heaven, eternal life, was incarnated in the person of Jesus, and I touched him. And I heard him speak, and I watched him do miracles. Remember, John is the guy who laid his head on Jesus' chest. They were that close. He says, I'm telling you, this guy was for real. His death was for real. His resurrection was for real. His perfect life was for real. Eternal life, therefore, is for real. And Peter said a similar thing. In 2 Peter 1, verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, look, we're not making this stuff up. We saw this guy. We saw God become man. We saw him when he was transformed into his glory. We saw him ascend into heaven. This is why we're willing to die for this. You see, when Paul tells the Corinthians, listen, when he wants them to ask them, hey, ask yourself, did I believe the true gospel or a false one? He's saying, listen, did I believe in the real Jesus or a false one? Did I believe in the Jesus that was, that was seen by men, witnessed to by men, or just some idea that these false teachers made up? Don't forget the Apostle Paul also saw Jesus after he was resurrected. Now, We'll close with this. David, the psalmist, someone who knew he belonged to God, still asked God to search him out. David said in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into lead me in the way everlasting i don't think it was paul's intention and i don't think it's the holy spirit's intention to get us to wonder if we're really saved oh no to doubt the salvation we've been given i think the holy spirit's desire i think paul's desire was for us to make sure that we've actually received it There's a difference. 
God wants us to know that we know Him. Not just, well, maybe. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Is Christ in you? Have you believed the real gospel? Are you convinced that you can trust what he says here, the testimony of this book? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that when you die, you're going to see him face to face and you're going to be made like him? Do you know? Because God wants you to know. And if you don't know, that's serious business. I want to challenge you guys today as I close in prayer. I want to challenge you to be still, to examine your heart, and ask yourself these questions before God. Listen, going to church isn't going to make you right with God. Saying a prayer is going to make you right with God. Doing some religious act like baptism or something like that is not going to make you right with God. It has to be what Jesus has done for you and you're putting your faith in him. Have you put your faith in him?